The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Rusas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke This is a Reconstructionist Radio Podcast. Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book and many others. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. My name is Shelby Luke and I will be reading from Roots of Reconstruction by Rusus John Rushdeny. Sovereignty. Chalcedon Position Paper Number 19. In the Ten Commandments, immediately after the command, quote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, unquote, is the prohibition of all graven images. Few commandments are more badly interpreted. All too many read it as a total ban on any religious art. This is clearly not true. God himself required a variety of carvings in the tabernacle, on the ark, and on various furnishings, but not on the altar. And he himself called and inspired men to do the work. Exodus 31, 1-6, etc. While depictions of God were forbidden, more is in this law than is often recognized. No graven images or any forms or likenesses are permitted as objects to use for worship in the sense of bowing down to them or serving them. Quote, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Unquote. Exodus 20, 4. These words are the key, and their meaning must be understood in order to obey this commandment. Paul had this commandment and more in mind when he cried out against the worship the people of Lystra gave him and Barnabas after the healing of a cripple, Acts 14, 8-18. The priest of Jupiter was ready to serve them and the people to bow down to them. To bow down and to serve is an ancient sign and symbol of the recognition of sovereignty. Because the pagan kings of antiquity claimed lordship over sovereignty, they required all men to acknowledge it on coming into their presence. This meant bowing down before them, sometimes prostrating themselves completely. It also commonly meant bringing gifts, a token of service. Thus the wise men came seeking the Christ child, the newly born king, 
whom they knew to be the great Messiah or God-King. They demonstrated this faith by falling down before the child and worshiping him. They then presented their gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, as tokens of their service to him as Lord and King. Matthew 2.11 Thus the law, when it reads, quote, Thou shalt not bow down to them, nor serve them, unquote, has reference to two related facts. First, the recognition of lordship or sovereignty. The one to whom we bow is he whom we acknowledge as our Lord. Second, he whom we serve is the one to whom we pay our tax or tithe and to whom we bring gifts. Hence, God requires both tithes and offerings, the tax and gifts above the tax, as evidence of our service and love. In the Christian era, monarchs received the pagan doctrine of kingship. They claimed lordship or sovereignty. They promoted the doctrine of their divine rights. In the 18th century, both Protestant and Catholic kings disapproved the use of Mary's Magnificat in churches. Because of the sentence, quote, He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. Unquote. Luke 1.52 They wanted no Lord Christ who could put them down and scatter them. The modern state is even worse, far worse. It does not hesitate to claim sovereignty. It presents itself after Hegel as God walking on earth. It claims jurisdiction over Christ's church and school as Lord, and it demands that we bow down and serve it as sovereign. This is the meaning of the law. No graven images means no representations of sovereignty or lordship. Neither a man nor an image can represent sovereignty, nor can a church, nor a state. God alone is the Lord. Quote, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. Unquote. Isaiah 45, 5. All too many churchmen are balking at a cross over the church, a symbol of Christ's triumph over sin and death, while bowing the knee to Caesar and serving him. Alan Stain rightfully and wisely titled his studies of the status persecutions of the church, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, including the state. The Bible is emphatic that Christians are to render obedience to whom obedience is due. Again and again, this duty of obedience to and prayers for all those in civil authority is stressed. Moreover, because the godly way is regeneration, not revolution. Christians are warned against being humanistic social revolutionists. 1 Corinthians seven twenty through 23 But they are at the same time to work lawfully to avoid being a slave people. In example, quote, the servants of men, unquote. At the same time, the nature of civil and other authorities is at all times and in all things limited by the word of God. Civil authorities are specifically spoken of as ministers of God, and the word translated as, quote, minister, unquote, is in the Greek our English word, quote, deacon, unquote, meaning servant. Quote, rulers, unquote, are thus to be servants under God, not lords or sovereigns. When the civil authorities divorce themselves from God and his law word, they become self-styled lords and lawless as well. As Augustine pointed out, 
Godless civil rulers are no more than bands of robbers, a more powerful mafia, and a more dangerous one. Being lawless in relation to God, they are lawless and predatory in relation to men. There is an important aspect to this commandment which is commonly neglected. Of the Ten Commandments, one other contains the promise of particular judgment and one other of particular blessing. Honoring parents has the promise of life. Quote, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Unquote. Exodus twenty twelve. The promise of judgment is given in Exodus twenty seven. Quote, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Unquote. See Chalcedon Position Paper number two. Quote, in the name of Jesus Christ, or in the name of Caesar. Unquote. Here, in this law, we have the longest promise, and it is of both judgment and blessing. Quote, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, and keep my commandments. Unquote. Exodus 20, 4-6 The judgment here promised is a lingering one. Sin has social consequences. Where a false doctrine of sovereignty prevails, there is a radical social disorientation and all life is warped and placed on false premises. A generation which asserts a humanistic doctrine of sovereignty will so alter life and society and all the institutions thereof that the evil consequences will persist for three and four generations. On the other hand, a true doctrine of sovereignty will affect the lives of thousands who do not share it because it will keep society on a godly foundation. The prohibition is against any form of idolatry, in example, any alien or ungodly doctrine of sovereignty. Sovereignty or lordship cannot be located on earth, in the heavens, or in the seas. It is in God alone. Covetousness, indeed sin in any form, is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 because sin asserts our will as primary, and our will replaces God's law in all sin. Sovereignty or lordship is the source of judgment and grace, either directly or by delegation. In Scripture, parents, pastors, civil authorities, employers, and others are instructed as to how to judge and reward faithful obedience and service. Their powers are under God. They are strictly delegated. The Bible recognizes no power independent of God. Quote, For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Unquote. Romans 13.1 For any of these delegated spheres of authority to speak of themselves as powers which are independent from God is rebellion and sin. For courts, the Internal Revenue Service, and other civil agencies to speak of allowing us so many, quote, days of grace, unquote, is blasphemy. 
Today, however, autonomy is claimed by virtually every civil government. Autonomy from God. All see themselves as sovereign, and hence their own source of law and power. We live in an age of statist idolatry, and we have become so blind that we do not see this obvious fact. All too many churchmen will quibble about trifles, but fail to see themselves surrounded and ruled by the enemies of God, humanists, and their idol and false lord, the state. We are ready to entertain the rule of other gods when we ourselves have openly or quietly rejected the true God, or are secretly in quest of, quote, freedom, unquote, from the living God. It is a very comforting illusion to tell ourselves that evil men did this to us, or that a conspiracy is responsible for our captivity to false lords or sovereigns. Every conspiracy begins, however, in the human heart as a conspiracy against God. The conspiracies of history, including our time, are all too real, but they make it convenient for all too many of us to forget our own sins. All over the country, I find men retreating into Pharisaism rather than advancing into dominion, and their excuse is a false holiness. No church is good enough for them. Granted, the church scene is a sad picture, but will withdrawal improve it? Moreover, are we so holy that we cannot afford to associate with other sinners saved by grace? Again, many refuse to vote failing to recognize that voting is a means of exercising dominion. Given the faults of all candidates, there is still a choice and a duty. Paul, in writing to the Corinthians that they should discipline and excommunicate a fornicator, warned them against trying to require a like standard of the world. Quote, For then must ye needs go out of this world. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 5, 10 they are not to leave the world, but to conquer it. Quote, superholiness, unquote, exalts us, not the Lord. The law says, quote, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, unquote. Exodus 20, 3. Including ourselves. It is not our will and law, but the Lord's which must govern. Quote, before me, unquote, means, quote, beside me, unquote sharing to any degree lordship or sovereignty with me. The relationship with God can only be exclusive. Moreover, the modern reading of the prohibition of graven images or idolatry in any form is seriously misread if its meaning is limited to worship or the place of worship. There are all too many today whose idol is Caesar who have no images, symbols, or signs in their plain churches. To have no other gods beside me, beside the Lord God, means that no other Lord has sovereignty over us in any and every area of life. It means that our total way of life is governed exclusively by God the Lord. To limit the scope of the law to what goes on in the church building is to deny the sovereignty or lordship of the living God. The Lord God in His law word must govern, control, dominate, inform, and regulate every atom of our being and every sphere of life and of the world. Anything short of this 
is idolatry. There can be no substitute for God in any sphere. Moreover, since any and every created representation of God is banned, it is clear that God cannot be absorbed into or identified with this world and its aspects. He is the eternal God, the Creator, not an item in an already existing universe. The creation cannot define Him. He creates and defines all creation. Man seeks to define and understand all things in terms of his experience, reason, and life. This is at the heart of all idolatry, whether simplistic and primitive, or rational and philosophical. By means of this law, God rejects all man-made efforts to define Him, or comprehend Him. He is to be known only in terms of His revelation. He also makes clear that the scope of His jurisdiction is total. There can be no other gods beside Him in any sphere of life and thought. An hour ago, I talked with a pastor whose church rebels against any application of Christ's lordship to anything outside the church, especially to anything in the sphere of the state. I was reminded of one well-known country where, at least until recently, if not now, a husband's adultery gives the wife no actionable ground for complaint unless the act or acts of adultery occur in the family home. All too many churchmen have a like view of idolatry. If it does not occur in Sunday morning or evening worship, it does not count. The key to idolatry comes to the surface in Exodus 27. Quote, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Unquote. Umberto Casuto rendered it thus, quote, You shall not take up the name of the Lord your God for unreality. Unquote. To take God's name for a valueless purpose is to treat God as unreality, rather than as Lord and Creator. To limit God's sovereignty and law to the church and to the inner life and to the, quote, private, unquote, morality of man is to deny His Lordship and to treat Him as an unreality. When we treat God as an unreality, we will prostrate ourselves before false gods including and especially the state, and we will serve them. Man is a religious creature. If he rejects the living God, he will serve other gods, and this God will not tolerate. The jealousy of God, Exodus 25, is grounded in his absoluteness and his universal dominion. The quote gods, unquote, of paganism were not jealous because they were not universal. Their jurisdictions were limited to one nation, state, or people, and to a particular sphere within that realm. They were simply powerful, quote, spirits, unquote, seeking to control the weather or the sea, love, the family, or some like limited sphere. Even within those limits, their powers were faulty and uncertain. Such, quote, gods, unquote, could not afford the luxury of claiming a broader sphere. They had enough problems minding their own shop. The God of Scripture is a jealous God because He has total jurisdiction over all things. Quote, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Unquote. Isaiah 42, 
a no other religion has anything comparable to this law prohibiting idolatry gerhard von rad in commenting on this same law as it appears in deuteronomy 5 8 through 10 noted quote, this prohibition of idols must be understood with the purpose of the idols in mind namely to manifest the deity unquote. deuteronomy page 57 God reserves the power to manifest Himself to Himself. 1 John 3.8 declares that Jesus Christ is God manifest, and 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us also that, quote, God was manifest in the flesh, unquote, in Jesus Christ. In all idolatry, physical, philosophical, or institutional, man seeks to determine what God's manifestation shall be. Wherever there is any talk of sovereignty, there is a claim to the manifestation of lordship or deity. Paul gives us some telling insights into idolatry. For example, in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, he writes, quote, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, unquote. Paul's references to the golden calf incident of the Exodus journey. There were, clearly, fertility cult practices on that occasion. He refers to these in the next verse. Quote, Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed. Unquote. 1 Corinthians 10, 8 Thus Paul separates two kinds of acts on that day. The simple eating and playing and the fertility cult sexual acts. The word play in the Greek text is peso, children's play, harmless play, as it were. Paul's point is that even those who abstained from the fertility cult practices were guilty of idolatry because they agreed with the general dismissal of God and Moses. They were, quote, moral, unquote, idolaters. They shared the general feeling, quote, For as for this man Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we wot not what is become of him, unquote. Exodus 32, 1. The feasting and playing was in the name of the Lord, Exodus 32, 5. But it was in contempt of him and his authority. In brief, Paul's meaning is that any aspect of life outside of God is idolatry. Quote, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, unquote. Romans 14, 23. George Bush was right when in 1841 he wrote of this law that its meaning and spirit are, quote, plainly exceedingly broad, unquote. Exodus, volume 1, 263. Churchmen have limited its scope in order to lessen sin. The time has come for us to confess in the words of Isaiah 26:13, "O Lord our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name." Unquote. We must renounce and war against all statist and other doctrines of lordship or sovereignty in the name of the Lord. The great baptismal confession of the early church that quote, "Jesus Christ is Lord." Unquote, must be our confession and banner now. Jesus Christ is Lord. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. 
Revelation 19:16 Let the nations tremble before him Sovereignty in action today In the modern world sovereignty or lordship has ceased to be the attribute of God and has become the attribute of either man or the state or shared by both Even those theologians who talk much about God's sovereignty tend to limit it to salvation the church and theology which means, in effect, to deny God's sovereignty. In our world today, the state has delusions of deity, and it sees itself as God walking on earth. As the concomitant of this fact, the state implicitly claims infallibility. With the Marxists, the dictatorship of the proletariat is the incarnation of the general will and is infallible. As a result, Nothing is more difficult in dealings with agencies of state than to get an admission of error. Have human lives been endangered or lost, or have, quote, private, unquote, parties been seriously maligned or damaged by an agency of the state? The state will go to any and all lengths to evade any admission of guilt or error. Is a status regulation absurd, inappropriate, or irrelevant? No true bureaucrat will admit such a possibility. Near Echo Summit on U.S. Highway 50 in California, the Vern Sprott family, entirely on their own, developed the Sierra Ski Ranch. In 1978, a day lodge was built on the top of the mountain. It is a model of, quote, advanced, unquote, construction ideas with solar heating panels and a windmill-powered generator as an alternate energy source. The Sprocks ran afoul of the state law requiring wheelchair-adapted toilets for the handicapped in all public places. The bureaucrats refused to consider the fact that the lodge can only be reached by skiing, not an activity for those confined to wheelchairs. Vern Sprock was compelled to add two wheelchair toilets at a cost of $400 each. Inquiry, December 8, 1980, page 2. The sad part of the story is that it is not unusual. Such nonsense is commonplace. In another instance, a small guest ranch hired as employees a couple, the wife as cook, the husband to handle the horses. They shared a small apartment. The, quote, law, unquote, required the owners to provide separate bathroom facilities for each of them under the requirement that male and female restroom facilities be separate. The sovereign state refuses to recognize the claims of common sense. All wisdom is incarnate in the state as the new God. Individuals are no less exempt from this madness. If one is sovereign, then all things are possible. According to Theodore Rosak, quote, a prominent psychotherapist remarks to me over lunch that people sleep and die only because they have been mistakenly programmed to believe they have to, and goes on to suggest how this erroneous programming might be therapeutically undone. Unquote. Harper's, January 1981, page 56. Anyone who is a good listener will hear like madness roll out of the mouths of today's products of humanistic education. All these people, however, have a reason for such beliefs. They are humanists. For them, sovereignty is an attribute of man or the state. 
the logic of their position leads them to such conclusions, unless they are under the influence of a Christian hangover. What can we say about the folly of those who are churchmen, ministers, and theologians, but who insist on the sovereignty of the state? They not only do so, but they insist on claiming biblical warrant for their sin. They bleat piously about rendering under Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but they will not render unto God the absolute lordship or sovereignty which is his. Matthew twenty-two twenty-one, Mark twelve seventeen, Luke twenty twenty-five. If we render to God the things which are his, then Caesar's only place is in submission to the Lord. Caesar will not be in submission to the Lord if we are not. Even Bertrand Russell, a militant humanist, understood what Jesus said. Quote, the advice of Jesus to give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's is a typical example of this Jewish recalcitrance. Though on the face of it, a compromise, it is nevertheless a refusal to recognize the identity of God and emperor. Unquote. Wisdom of the West, page 129. Precisely, I render unto Caesar, unto my neighbor, unto my wife and children, as to all men, whatever is their due under God, but never that which must be rendered unto God. Very simply defined, sovereignty means a monopoly of power and law. The two are inseparable. Power and law are attributes of sovereignty. Hence, Christ, as Lord and King of creation, declares, Quote, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Unquote. In terms of this sovereignty, the Lord orders the discipling of quote, all nations, unquote. Quote, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Unquote. Matthew twenty eight, eighteen through twenty. The word used for quote, commanded unquote, in the Greek is intello, noun entole, meaning to order to command. Entole was once in a while used as equivalent to Torah, as in the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 17, 19, quote, all the words of the law, unquote. Thus Christ sets forth as basic to his royal requirement that the disciples recognize that all power is his, and it is his law which must be taught to all, and obeyed by all who are redeemed and baptized Quote, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Unquote. This is a very plain declaration of sovereignty. It made inescapable the conflict between the Church and Rome, between Christ and Caesar. There cannot be two lords. Every social order is a system of power in application and in interrelationships. A social order is a power structure and faith in operation. The Lord of the social order is the source of power in the system, the ability and authority to dominate men and institutions depends on the faith in a sovereign power. When faith in that Lord or sovereign declines, the social order begins to decay and collapse. Egon Friedel, in his Cultural History of the Modern Age, saw the Black Death as the beginning of the collapse of faith in the, quote, medieval, unquote, order, and World War I as the terminal point of confidence in the modern culture. 
Today, humanism's concepts of sovereignty are decaying. It is mandatory for Christians to set forth Christ's sovereignty and his crown rights. One of these is his law, biblical law. Law is a statement of causation and of necessity. It describes the order of being. In natural laws, scientists seek to determine that which uniformly and of necessity occurs. God's law gives God's order of causality and necessity, as witness Deuteronomy 28. Humanism has eroded the doctrines of causality and necessity and therefore of law. It is thus in disintegration. In the process, God's law, power, and sovereignty are being openly vindicated. Form and Reality The death of a culture, its civilization, and its law can be seen as very near when form replaces reality. As the end approaches, various groups begin to sense the coming collapse and calls resound for a, quote, return, unquote, to something. Demands for a return to reason are not uncommon. Reason, however, cannot always be equated with reality, and in a world of Hegelian thought, reason and reality are two very different things. Another common call is for a return to, quote, religion, unquote. But the term, quote, religion, unquote, can cover a multitude of sins. The decay may well be due to both faulty religion and faulty reason. In other words, these hoped-for returns to our various roots are not necessarily a return to reality. When form replaces reality, there is a radical departure from the mainstays of life. It is like being content with and preferring pictures of food to food itself. The church has led the way into this retreat from life, from reality to form. By way of illustration, we can focus on the retreat from reality to form in the doctrine of communion. The church has long been divided on its view of this doctrine, closed communion or open communion, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or memorial, and so on and on. In the process, the reality which alone gives life and meaning to the form and prevents it from becoming blasphemous is forgotten or neglected. The reality behind the, quote, symbols, unquote, has two facets. First, and paramount, is the doctrine of Christ's atonement for sin. The sacrament has behind it an historical event, Christ's atoning death and resurrection, and a legal fact, our deliverance from sin by Christ's substitution and our justification. Second, because with our salvation, we are also made Christ's new humanity and members one of another. We are now a family and a kingdom. As members of one another, we care for one another. This is the meaning of the parable of judgment, Matthew twenty-five thirty-one through 46 All who present themselves before the king call him, quote, Lord, unquote. They have been outwardly, quote, members, unquote, of him, no doubt faithful at worship and in participation in the sacrament. The king's test, however, is this, quote, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me, unquote. Matthew twenty-five forty-five. 
Many who have turned their back on men like Lester Roloff when on trial will hear this sentence. In other words, our Lord's test question is, what about reality? All facing the king in this parable call him Lord. All are apparently agreed on, quote, sound, unquote, doctrine, as far as the forms are concerned. Our Lord indicts none on these matters. All have the form of godliness, but lack the power and the reality thereof. 2 Timothy 3, 5. In the living church, people are members of one another, not wolves tearing at the flock or false shepherds deserting it. In a dying world, form replaces reality. The theater replaces life, and the actor or entertainer becomes the real person. The more commanding figures of our day are actors and entertainers. Their movements, words, and affairs are momentous matters to millions. Their deaths, as with the case of Elvis Presley and John Lennon, are front-page stories for days and of worldwide concern. The death of John Lennon was mourned in both dying Moscow and dying New York, as well as elsewhere, and fittingly so. Let the dead bury the dead. Matthew eight twenty-two. In politics, we see the rapid and disproportionate increase of the bureaucracy all over the world. The modern state, when confronted with a problem, creates a bureaucracy whose province is that problem. No bureaucracy works itself out of a job. The form of a solution, a law, and a bureaucracy replaces reality. When the people grow weary of the politics of the hour, another group takes over to substitute new forms for old ones. Meanwhile, realities like inflation, lawlessness, and social conflict increase and abound on all sides. At the same time, the candidates and elected officials become more and more geared to presenting a good act before the cameras and press. Politics becomes a form of theater, and legislation a type of theatrical presentation. The public itself seeks new legislation, not by means of reasoned arguments and data presented before legislation committees, but by demonstrations, confrontations, and actions created for the theater of politics. Whatever route taken to influence and shape legislation and administration, a governing principle is that it must be good theater. The nature of what constitutes good theater varies from year to year, but not the essential fact that form has replaced reality. All reality begins and ends with the triune God and His law word. Apart from that, Men walk in darkness, Isaiah 8:20. C.S. Lewis portrayed the inhabitants of hell as living in a deep and dark world, but insisting that it was merely the gray before the dawn. They had forever forsaken reality. When men replace reality with forms, they desecrate and dishonor what often are otherwise good and necessary forms, because they cheapen their meaning. A Russian legend of the very early days of Christianization tells us of a lonely priest in a church when pagan Poles invaded the area. One of the Polish warriors invaded the church, dragging a captive woman. The warrior seized an image of the virgin, threw the captive woman on top of it, and raped her. 
The priest from his hiding place saw this, and he cried out in prayer to God to avenge the desecration of his church and the violation of the woman. God answered the priest, saying, This sinner will in his time be punished. But why should his sin be worse in my eyes than your sins, your casualness about your calling, and your complacency before me? The priest, in other words, had been faithful to the forms, but he had forgotten the reality of the faith, and his sin was greater. Judgment begins at the house of God. 1 Peter 4:17. So too must Reformation. January 1981. The Meaning of the Sabbath. Chalcedon Position Paper Number 20. Men commonly sin even in their professed obedience to God by reducing God's law to the lowest common denominator or to its minimal meaning. The law, quote, thou shalt not steal, unquote, Exodus 20:15, covers every form of theft. Robbing another man, robbing God of his tithes and offerings, Malachi 3, 8-12, the debasement of coinage and inflation, Isaiah 1, and much, much more. Men find it convenient to limit the law to simple theft. This means that a man who produces or sells shoddy merchandise under false pretenses, or a man who does not work to earn his pay, but rather does as little as possible, can claim they are not thieves. In God's sight, however, and in His court, the full meaning of the law prevails. A key mistreated law is the Sabbath law. Quote, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. And wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Unquote. Exodus twenty eight through 11 Before beginning a study of these words, two things need to be understood. First, the commandment is to rest, not worship. Worship is to be a continuous fact, as well as a weekly one, but the central aspect of the Sabbath observance is rest. Second, many have limited this observance of rest to their definitions. The Pharisees strictly limited the number of feet a man could walk on the Sabbath and had precise rules of limitation on every activity. On the other hand, Many today see the Sabbath as a day for their personal relaxation and leisure. Neither is right. To understand the Sabbath, we must see first what it involves. It means a weekly day of rest, one day in seven. The Hebrew Sabbath began on sundown of the night before, and it continued until dawn of the next day. Many Puritans observed a like Sabbath. The Sabbath rest included the work animals and also the earth, which, with man, had to rest one year in seven. The faculties of universities still are allowed a sabbatical year, but for the most part this observance has fallen into disuse. We need to work for its restoration. The fiftieth year was also a Sabbath, the Jubilee. 
Now consider the meaning of all this as it relates to time. Every seventh day, every seventh year, and every half century another year were set aside for rest. The implications of this were far more radical in those days than now. Except for works of necessity, an example where continuous operation was required as in milking or works of mercy. Rest was mandatory. Since production of food was then more marginal than now, it was far more difficult to store up sufficient food reserves for a sabbatical year. There was a further aspect to the Sabbath, a rest from debt. Debts had to be for a six-year term only, or a fraction thereof, if the Sabbath year were closer. An obvious fact now appears. A society observing the Sabbath had to be provident, and it could not be inflationary. To earn enough and to produce enough to make work unnecessary eight years out of fifty and own over two thousand weekly Sabbath days as well, almost six years more in aggregate, making almost fourteen out of fifty years given to the waking Sabbath rest, required a future-oriented and provident people. Such a people must be willing, able, and productive workers. They must be able to plan and use wisely their time and wealth. To observe the Sabbath was a mark of character and more. Even further, a society in which debt is limited to six years, Deuteronomy 15, 1-6, is a society which is anti-inflationary. Add to this the requirement of just monetary weights, Leviticus 19, 35-36, and inflation is virtually impossible. The result is social stability and prosperity. A society thus which observes the Sabbath can truly rest in the Lord. Its todays and tomorrows are circumscribed by God's law and therefore God's blessing and providential care. Furthermore, such a society is free from anxiety. With most men, today and tomorrow are matters of anxiety. Their failure to be provident, their participation in a lawless society, and the uncertainty of their future lead to a neurotic and anxious frame of mind. It is foolishness to believe that counseling or spiritual exercises can remove an anxiety which is the product of lawlessness. A lawless people will always be an anxious people. We are confronted today with a constant flow of books aimed at relieving anxiety, and psychotherapy is a big business, but few work at the root problem of anxiety, sin and guilt before God, and a failure to trust in His law and government. Basic to the Sabbath and its rest is liberation from work. The root of this liberation is faith, faith in the Lord and His covenant salvation, to cease from our labors to so great an extent as the law requires, requires on the one hand a provident and diligent life, and on the other a deep trust in God's work. The Lord, having given us His covenant salvation, is able to give His covenant care. The nation, to have God's blessing, must observe this covenant sign, which means that the goal is not only a weekly observance, but the observance of the sabbatical year of rest, so that all God's people may rest and rejoice in Him. This is a legal, national duty and requirement. 
When we cease from our labors, we rest in the Lord's accomplished work of salvation and His ongoing work of providential care. It is a rest in which we commit ourselves and all our being into God's hands. David says, quote, Rest in the Lord, and wait patiently for Him. Fret not thyself because of Him who prospereth in His way, because of the man who bringeth wicked devices to pass. Unquote. Psalms 37, 7. In terms of this resting in the Lord, William Whiting Borden, 1887-1913, wrote in his notebook in his freshman year at Yale, quote, Lord Jesus, I take hands off as far as my life is concerned. I put thee on the throne in my heart, unquote. Mrs. Howard Taylor, Borden of Yale, 09, page 123. The Sabbath is liberation because it frees us from ourselves and our work in the confidence of God's superior government and work. It is liberation from history as the determining agent because it affirms God's determination of all things. The opposite of the Sabbath is the Hindu doctrine of karma. According to this doctrine, man is a captive of his past, of his history, and he is inescapably bound to the past. Only through a long series of many, many reincarnations can he free himself from history into death. The Sabbath does not deny causality, but whereas karma says causality is essentially historical, the Sabbath and its rest are a triumphant witness to the fact that causality is primarily supernatural. The Sabbath is blessed and hallowed by God above all other days and years as a witness to its liberating character and its witness to His supernatural government and providence. The Sabbath is separated from other days, and thus we too must separate ourselves from all our other days and activities. When we reduce, as is so commonly done, the day to a church Sabbath, we deny the necessity for the separation of the whole of man and his society to the Lord. This is why the Sabbath applies to all things, ourselves, our land, the aliens in our midst, church, state, and all things. For the state to deny the Sabbath is to deny God. Biblical law separates while making them interdependent, church and state. It does not separate the Sabbath and the state. There is, however, a further and basic meaning to the Sabbath. As we have seen, it requires both faith and providence on the part of man. Man must live so that he can rest in the seventh year without an income. He must rest apart from works of necessity and must do so without anxiety. Clearly, covenant man must be future-oriented and provident. He must, however, be also present-oriented. The Sabbath is a celebration of God's present order and His ever-present help. Psalms 46 gives us this kind of faith. In the midst of cataclysmic earthquakes, floods, and desolations, the word for faith is, quote, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth, unquote. Psalms 46.10 It is knowing that the, quote, Lord of hosts is with us, unquote, Psalms 46.11, and that it is His righteous judgment that shakes our world, 
the things that are, are being shaken, so that only those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Hebrews 12:27. It means knowing that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8:28. Psalm 118:24 declares, quote, "This is the day which the Lord has made; we will rejoice and be glad in it." Unquote. The commandment orders us to keep the Sabbath because, quote, "In six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them is." Unquote. Exodus 20:11. God, having created all things, has no problem in the government of all things. In the midst of our world's miseries, which are His judgments, we can rest in His government. The Sabbath is a celebration of the present day in the face of all things, in the certain knowledge that it is God's ordained day and we are members of His covenant. Therefore, rejoice! Karma and the Sabbath The world of karma is a world without God and without rest. Hinduism has no Sabbath, and no naturalistic faith can have a true Sabbath. In a naturalistic world, man is caught in tension between two conflicting facts. First, if there is no God, everything depends upon man. If everything depends upon man, then man must be at the command post of his life continuously, night and day, awake and asleep. The psychological implications of this are enormous. Rest is precluded, and the humanistic man is plagued with insomnia, an inability to rest while seeking it with intensity, and a nightmare-haunted life with things threatening to go out of control. Life is lonely at the top, especially if we live in a dead universe, and if we are all alone in our heart's concerns. Second, if man is alone in a dead universe, a world without God, he faces the relentless and blind workings of that universe. Things happen because they must happen, without any source in mind, reason, or purpose. This means that man's purposes work against a world of total purposelessness. It means, moreover, that an unrelenting and blind causality works against him. Hinduism calls this karma. Others have varying names for it the sum total of a blind world's forces and past work against us and govern us. Heredity, the environment, our sins, the stars, our ID, ego, superego, our primordial past, and much, much more controls us. Instead of being in control, we are controlled. Thus a naturalistic worldview of faith tells us to be the captains of our souls and fate, but also tells us that we are the creatures of nature, karma, or what have you. The result is no rest. The Sabbath can only flourish with a living faith. It means knowing that the government of all things is on the Lord's shoulders, not ours. Isaiah 9, 6-7 We can therefore rest in His government, providence, and care. We can also work in the magnificent assurance that our labor is not vain or futile in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15:58, Romans 8:28. If there is no God, there can be no rest. Quote, the wicked are like the troubled sea, 
when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Unquote. Isaiah fifty-seven twenty through 21 If we have peace and rest, we communicate it. We are then at all times a Sabbath people. If we do not have rest, then we are a restless and a warring people. We are at war with God, with our neighbor, and with ourselves. We become a center of unrest, and we radiate disturbance. We then create conflicts and try to justify them in the name of our principles. Men without a Sabbath rest, as the principle of their lives, are men without Christ, who is our true Sabbath. Hebrews 4, 9-16 We rest in Him who declares, quote, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid, unquote. John fourteen twenty seven. The Sabbath is thus much more than a day. It is the Lord of faith and of faithfulness. It is resting in Him and also living and working in Him. Are you living under karma or in the terms of the Sabbath? February 1981 Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction by Bruce's John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus. It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the love he had shown us by his paying the very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me. Tell the world how Jesus
Jesus Christ has set you free, set you free.